listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville, and it's time for the Thursday edition of KVMR's Evening News. KVMR's newscast airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. After the NPR headlines and local weather, we'll have this week's edition of Bravehearts, followed by Keith Porter's interview with Leo Granucci. Also part of the newscast is an NPR report on the census. Closing out today's newscast, we have Molly Fisk with an essay. At 6.30, we'll be broadcasting this week's edition of Making Contact and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines followed by regional weather. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Legislation that would more than triple the amount of coronavirus relief checks has hit a dead end in the Republican-controlled Senate. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell continues to block the House-passed measure. McConnell once again blocked a vote on the measure, slamming the $2,000 checks as socialism for rich people. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer accused McConnell of turning his back on the millions of Americans struggling during the pandemic. I hope every American who has their water or heat or electricity shut off or had to choose which meal to skip on a given day. I hope they all heard the reason they will not receive $2,000 checks is because Leader McConnell thinks it could wind up in the hands of, quote, Democrats' rich friends. McConnell has paired the measure for higher stimulus checks with legislation that Democrats don't support, essentially quashing the effort. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Several states are moving up seniors in their COVID vaccine distribution lines. In Nashville, Blake Farmer of member station WPLN reports Tennessee is one of those states. Federal guidelines give states some latitude in who to prioritize for vaccination. Tennessee has now decided to start vaccinating anyone over 75 as early as next week, whether they're in a nursing home or not. Dr. Lisa Piercy, who leads the state's Department of Health, says seniors make up a majority of hospitalizations in the state and even a higher percentage of the deaths. It allows us to vaccinate our highest risk Tennesseans earlier, regardless of their employment status or their industry. And the the crux of all of our decision-making is risk. Colorado, Florida, and Texas are also moving seniors to the front of the line, in part to respond to unanticipated delays in vaccine distribution. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. The European Union says new U.S. tariffs on European goods will disrupt ongoing negotiations trying to end the 16-year dispute over aircraft subsidies. Terry Schultz reports that EU officials say they will take up the long-running trade dispute with the incoming Biden administration. The latest round of U.S. import duties on EU goods is in response to what the U.S. Trade Representative's Office says were excessive tariffs imposed by the EU on American goods earlier this year. The two sides have both been found by the WTO to have illegally subsidized their aircraft manufacturers, a ruling that's allowed both sides to engage in a protracted tariff fight. Terry Schultz reporting, Wall Street pulled it out of the fire on the last day of 2020. The Dow and the S&P 500 both at records despite a coronavirus-shaken global market. The Dow up 196 at 30,606 points. This is NPR News. 
Senator David Perdue of Georgia is now in quarantine after coming into contact with a COVID-infected person. He is one of two Republican incumbents in the state facing a runoff vote five days from now. The campaign says he and his wife have tested negative. Early voting in both the Purdue and the Senator Kelly Leffler races has turnout for a Georgia runoff at record highs. If both lose, control of the U.S. Senate will cross into Democratic hands. New Year's Eve in Times Square won't have the crowds, but the ball will drop at midnight. As NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports, the annual live broadcast also will go on. This is the 49th New Year's Eve celebration produced by Dick Clark Productions. The host, Ryan Seacrest, will talk to President-elect Joe Biden and Jill Biden in their last interview of 2020. Performers on the ABC broadcast also include Cindy Lauper and Billy Porter. They worked on the show Kinky Boots together. Oh, Papa's got a brand new shoe. Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve will include performances from Los Angeles and New Orleans. With the coronavirus crippling the world this year, the countdown to 2021 can't come soon enough. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. From New Zealand to Australia to Asia to the Arab Gulf and now to Moscow. National celebrations in most places are restrained by a global pandemic. Everyone is eager to embrace a new chapter in 2021. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News. And taking a look at the weather in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, looks like we'll have a low of 41 tonight, high of 50 tomorrow, partly cloudy tomorrow and Saturday, with several days of rain starting on Sunday. In Sacramento, low of 37, high of 56, partly cloudy tomorrow, and Saturday with rain likely late Sunday and Monday. And in Truckee, a low of 13, high of 42, partly cloudy over the weekend with possible snow on Monday. Welcome to this edition of Brave Hearts, where we hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis. We are your hosts, William Wallace and Betty Louise, and these are the Brave Hearts. Hello, everybody. This is Betty Louise, and I'm happy to say that I'm here with my partner, William Wallace. And we have a couple of really interesting people to catch their story, uh, Gail and David. And they both have a story about homelessness. So I think I'm just going to get right to it and ask you, Gail, to share a little bit about your story and pass the mic to David. Thank you, Betty Louise. Well... About three years ago, my former husband stopped paying my rent, and I was uh, not in a position where I could work. I'm 
I am in my early 80s and have a health issue or two, which I take into consideration and, and work around and sometimes ignore. And so I wasn't in a position to get work. What I decided to do was I decided to liquidate all of my precious things, my furniture and whatnot. And I had a friend who lived in Arizona and she offered me a place to stay while I got myself oriented. And my original thought was that I would uh, like to, being the airy fairy that I am, I would like to work in uh, Sedona. So she was in uh, Phoenix, and once a week I would go to Sedona, and I traipsed all around Sedona and found out who I should talk to and whatnot. And I very quickly saw that there was no way that I was going to be able, number one, to afford to live in Sedona. And so I came back. I had saved enough money to get back and have a couple hundred dollars in my pocket, and I had no place to go. So I got back into town and uh, spent a couple nights with a couple of different friends. Then I had another friend who had offered me throughout the years if I ever got into a place where I, I didn't have a place to live that I was more than welcome in her home. And so I took her up on that, and that didn't work. She had no idea what it was like to share a home with an, another woman. So I ended up the last weekend in July of last year in the heat wave. I ended up on the street in my car. And I didn't have coping skills for this. I didn't know what to do. And I spent a couple of nights in the hospital uh, parking lot. And uh, there were someone saw me there. And I was asked to leave. So I got rousted out of the parking lot of the hospital. And then uh, basically for four months, I slept in my car, some of it on the street. I did have one friend that told me I could park in her driveway at night so that I would be safe and that I could take a weekly shower. So that's what I did until in November when it started getting really cold. A dear friend and his uh, partner invited me to stay in their home until I got things worked out. At the very end of my living in my car, I decided I needed to generate income one way or the other. So I uh, started a, a house sitting slash pets sitting business, and it was by word of mouth. So I would go and stay in somebody's home and take care of their pet. When it was over, I got back in my car and spent the night on the street. <laughs> None of them knew. I, if you take a look at me, you would never know that that, that that was the position that I was in, and that was very deliberate because I am not a victim. I have dignity and I'm clean. Business started to pick up and I got myself booked. March came along, I started getting booked and I was booked all the way through November, COVID hit. I catch a job every once in a while, but uh, it's still, as we know, uh, impacting everyone. So my income stream is basically my uh, Social Security, which is enough to take care of just a very few things. But I own my car free and clear, and I'm fine. So the experience of being homeless is something that was a shock to me. I had no idea what it was like to not have any place to go. No restroom facilities. Cold at night and wearing seven or eight different layers of clothes and absolutely totally unprepared for it. But I'll tell you, it is turned out to be an incredible opportunity to learn a whole lot. I feel blessed. I've been able to have 
someplace to be where I was welcome and no pressure to leave. That's how I got there and uh, then I can maybe later on discuss some of the psychological aspects of, uh, of homelessness because those are, the, those are the most impacting. Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind. Be well and be kind. This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org. I'm Keith Porter for KVMR News, and I'm talking today with Leo Granucci. Now, Leo is a well-known community activist and philanthropist in our community. He's done a lot of good things for the community. But he's currently the co-chair of the Citizens Advisory Committee for the Nevada County Relief Fund. Now, Leo, did I get that right? Is it called the Citizens? It's the Community Advisory Council. Community Advisory Council for the Nevada Mm -hmm. County Relief Fund. The Nevada County Relief Fund is something I think really special about our area. It was established in the spring when the County Board of Supervisors voted to create a grant of $100,000 to start the fund. And Leo and others got very involved and got the community behind it and raised a whole lot of additional money to actually support that 100000 and go a whole lot further. So, Leo, how did you get involved in uh, such an interesting process? My wife and I, we were on our annual trip to Maui, and uh, I got a call in the middle of uh, April from a friend of mine, Sherry Bartolucci, saying, hey, Leo, would you uh, co-chair the Community Advisory Council of the Nevada County Relief Fund with me? And I said, what? (laughs) It's the first I heard of it. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about it. And she told me about the Nevada County Relief Fund, how it was created through a partnership between the county and the Sierra Nevada Memorial Hospital and the Sierra Business Council and the Center for Nonprofit Leadership. And what their goal was is to you know, direct resources to the small businesses and the safety net uh, nonprofits that have been impacted by the pandemic. And, and I said, that sounds good. I said, uh, but uh, tell me about the Community Advisory Council. What's our role? She said, well, our, our first role is to fundraise to the community, and I said, okay, that's great. And then there are four uh, voting members on the Community Advisory Council, and we would make the final decision on the recommendations of the of the grants to be awarded. That's a pretty heavy responsibility in a way, isn't it? So wh- why did you choose to do that? The other thing I'm guessing is that there's probably lots of administrative details that you've had to work through and work with that may be frustrating. So once again, why did you decide to take on this role? Well, first, I, I felt that there was a, a definite need, seeing how our small businesses and nonprofits were being financially uh, impacted. And when I saw what the partnership was with the county and the private sector, uh, that that was encouraging to me. And then when I got back home, when we had our first meeting to find out, okay, how do we do this? I found out there was a significant infrastructure that had to be put into place. You, you know, it's a great idea, but... Uh, but how do you administer it? It, it? it took a village. It really did. And I, I, I'd be remiss going into names because I'd miss somebody. But the infrastructure behind this is once the decision was made and the County Board of Supervisors uh, awarded that first 100000 challenge grant to the, to the community, you know, we had to put together a fundraising uh, a strategy. And so there was a committee doing that. 
marketing. There was a committee doing the marketing. And then there was two ad hoc committees that uh, had to develop the grant applications, one for the nonprofits and one for the small businesses. And then these two ad hoc committees, uh, once they drafted them, we got it out to the community. And then when they came in, the ad hoc committees had to review the grant applications. They had to score them. And then they had to make their recommendation to the community advisory council. And, and like I say, this it did take a village. A lot of people were involved. And, and the people involved were all volunteers. All volunteers. Well, I'm guessing that there is probably a need out there that's greater. I know the community has been very generous, and maybe you can outline how, how that's happened briefly for us. But but how do you feel about uh, the fact that there's undoubtedly needs that have not been met yet? It must be kind of an emotional burden to, to see that happen when somebody needs money but isn't able to be awarded it. You know, it, it's interesting you say that the first go-around we were able to, the first round we did at the end of May, we had raised uh, $210,000, and I, that was just, I thought that was a great job in the community stepping forward. But out of the first round applicants, the, the applicants totaled uh, a request of over a million and a half dollars. So that that gives you some indication the need out there. So it's and, a, and, a small percentage, 20% or so of the need e- potentially met. E- exactly, and that need, uh, has increased over the months, you know, so it's uh, it's just critical right now. And, of course, we're waiting for the, you know, the federal government to pass another relief fund. But in the meantime, small businesses and nonprofits, they've been significantly financially impacted through no fault of their own. And, and that's it's a real frustrating thing. You know, if somebody had a small business and neglected the business and, 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 and was having financial problems, that was their problem. But the pandemic was not their problem. Absolutely. So you mentioned there was a first round, and this is now, uh, it, the the fund is in, what, the fourth round of actually Yeah, r- yeah we're, in the, we're in the fourth round right now. The, the, the first round uh, awarded uh, $210,000, and the second round uh, was uh, another 200000 and then the, the third round was 250000 Year to date... Uh, we have awarded close to $800,000. And, and uh, 200000 if I'm correct, has been granted by the county, so the rest of that has all been out of the hearts of uh, community members. Is that true? Exactly. It, it, year to date, since the program started in, in May, uh, we've raised $1,055,000. And 50% of that came from donations from members of our community, Okay, which I think is just tremendous. Yeah. So, Leo, what what's ahead now? We're in the fourth round. Um, there, there's specifically um, uh, the target now. I think is small businesses, if I'm correct. Uh, right. And and what what's in the next couple of weeks? What happens uh, with the uh, with the money being raised and distributed? Well, what, what's happened? You know, we started the fourth round starting uh, December first, so we've been at it for you know 29 days, and so far we've raised approximately $260,000, which I think is tremendous. Now, and this is all new money. This is not it's part all, of the first all, three rounds, right? All, all, all brand new money. Wow. And, uh, you know, 100000 uh, when they approved it uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, another 100000 Okay, the, the last 28 days we've raised 260000 in new monies. 
wow. for the fourth round. And we, <clears throat> our goal, we really don't have a goal. We have another week to go to, to raise the funds because our goal all along has been to disperse the funds as quickly as we possibly can and get it into the hands of the small businesses. So uh, the fourth round we started was December 1st, and uh, the goal is to cut checks, have all the grants reviewed, applications, and have checks cut on uh, January 14th. Well, Leo, it, I, I think this whole uh, experience is evidence of an incredibly uh, positive and dynamic community that we live in with where people really care and really want to keep this community working well. And I, I know you're a major part of that. You're, you're one of those players that sees that it happens. And uh, uh, we're grateful to you. We're grateful to the community for, for the, making this happen. And thank you so much for serving in the way you have. Well, uh, our pleasure. You know, we, we see a, a, a light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccines being approved and uh, our goal is that when we exit that tunnel that our small businesses are still with us to service the needs of our community. Absolutely. Leo Granucci, co-chair of the Nevada County Relief Fund Community Advisory Council. Thank you very much for talking with us today on KVMR. Well, thank you for having me, Keith. Next up, this special report from NPR. Today was supposed to be the start of turning this year's census results into political power. But the Census Bureau announced the results will not be ready until early 2021. That delay will have big implications on how many electoral college votes and seats in Congress each state gets for the next decade. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong covers all things census-related. He joins us from New York to explain what this means. Good morning, Hansi. Hi, Leila. So this delay was confirmed to you by a source last night. Can you break down why this is so significant? Well, what was supposed to happen today was new state population counts from the census were supposed to be reported to the president by the Commerce Secretary who oversees the Census Bureau. These are the numbers used to determine each state's share of seats in the House of Representatives, as well as electoral college votes for the next 10 years. Federal law says today is the last day to report those numbers, but this year the Census Bureau is missing this reporting deadline for the first time since it was put in place more than 40 years ago. There's no penalty for missing this legal deadline, but that does further complicate an already messy census process. So what's behind the delay? COVID-19, number one, as well as the Trump administration's last-minute schedule changes to the census that cut short counting as well as the time for running quality checks. You know, the main problem right now is the Census Bureau has found irregularities in the records and it needs more time to make sure no one is counted twice or in the wrong place. You know, inside the Census Bureau, missing this deadline is a very big deal because the civil yeah. servants there are very aware that major delays in delivering these numbers could throw off all the other steps that come afterwards to get House seats reallocated and eventually voting districts redrawn. So you've also been reporting on on how President Trump wants to alter these numbers before leaving office. How does this delay affect what the president's trying to do? Well, President Trump wants to exclude unauthorized immigrants from those state population counts despite the Constitution's requirement to include, quote, the whole number of persons in each state. 
And so a delay in getting out these results, these population counts, could mean that President-elect Joe Biden ends up receiving the numbers Trump wants to alter. Yeah. So a big question right now is how long it will take for the Census Bureau to finish fixing these irregularities they found in the records. There's also a worry that the Trump administration may cut short the quality checks and force out inaccurate and incomplete numbers. If they do that, the clerk of the House of Representatives, who certifies each state's new number of House seats, may refuse to accept altered numbers. And that could spark just a flurry of more lawsuits. Hansi, it sounds like you have a lot to keep track of before Inauguration Day. What are you looking for next? What are you watching? I'm watching to see what happens around January 9th. A source within the Census Bureau tells me that's when the Bureau internally is trying to see when they'll may start the last steps in processing these census records. And that may be when we find out when the first set of results eventually come out. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong, thank you for all your reporting on the census. You're welcome, Layla. You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KC, PC, Camino, Placerville, and this is the Thursday edition of KVMR's Evening News. KVMR's news program airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. Coming up at 6.30 this evening, we have this week's edition of Making Contact, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Closing out today's newscast, we have Molly Fisk with an essay. And next Thursday will be a very special moment on KVMR News. It will be Molly's 500th essay on KVMR. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. The week between Christmas and New Year's has always been one of my favorites. Life goes into delectable slow motion. Despite a few crazy people exchanging presents they didn't like for something else, or scooping up wrapping paper on sale to use next year, everyone's all shopped out for the moment. The advertisers have done their best and are briefly silent. No glossy catalogs arrive in the mail. The New Yorker and Vogue are slim again after their seasonal bloating. The incessant din of supply and demand is hushed, as commerce takes an all-too-brief annual break from its vigorous and wily efforts to part each of us from our last remaining dollar. The kids aren't in school and people are out of town, so traffic thins to a trickle. Refrigerators bristle with leftovers, and no one has to run to the grocery store. We just invent new and ever more bizarre concoctions out of celery, yams, and gravy. That is when we even bother to eat. Enough eating takes place in the first three weeks of December to sustain most of us until Easter. What this time of year always makes me think of is the lull in those old black-and-white French movies after a torrid sex scene, when the two lovers lean back into their pillows and light cigarettes. Maybe they talk a little or give each other a look, but mostly it's just smoke curling up from their two galois and a little background music. I myself woke up yesterday to a rainy day and snuggled in bed for the first time in my life to watch a video before breakfast. 
This was so outlandish that I had to race around afterward and do five or six productive things, just to prove I hadn't completely lost my moral fibers. Then a sudden attack of sewing came over me, and I got out some blue fabric with ducks on it that I'd been meaning to make into potholders for years. Five years, to be exact. Instead of creating new potholders from scratch, I covered the two ratty ones I had, and now they're so elegant and pristine I hesitate to use them. After the manic stitching fit, I calmed down again and sat on the sofa, reading one of my Christmas presents, a biography of the poet Anne Bradstreet. In between forays out to the woodpile and stir-frying turkey surprise, I've been dipping into this book all week. I've also been wearing my new Christmas socks and creating my own lattes with a fabulous milk-fizzling gizmo. If it weren't for making a living, this would be the life, I tell you. There's something delicious about not being on a schedule. That kind of goofing around time is incredibly nourishing, as well as covering potholders, which was about 2,912th on my to-do list. I had enough spaciousness in my head to write a poem. If you've had a languorous week like this also, remember it when the time comes to think up New Year's resolutions, and don't make any. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast for this evening. KVMR's Evening News airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30 p.m. If there's something you'd like to hear again, you can go to our website at kvmr.org where you can download audio or listen on demand. Coming up next, we have this week's edition of Making Contact and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For KVMR's News Team, I'm Paul Emery. Have a good evening.